You're listening to The Health Classes You Missed. My name is Monica and I'm a secondary school health teacher with a passion for all things health. Whether you're currently at school or you finished 20 years ago, this podcast will help you understand those topics that may have been skimmed over, considered inappropriate or flat out ignored. So sit up straight, faces forward, let's get into it. Hello everyone, I am back in business today after having COVID for a week and I've got a really fantastic guest on for today's episode. I'm chatting with Selene Douglas, a qualified nutritionist who is studying a Master's of Reproductive Medicine. Selene works as a women's health and hormone nutritionist, helping women live pain and symptom-free with day-to-day nutrition and guidance around their menstrual cycle. I just want to apologize in advance if I do sound a little bit nasally today. I am still recovering and anyone who has had COVID will know how I'm feeling right now. But I hope you all enjoy this episode and you take so much out of what Selene has to say today. So welcome Selene. Thank you very, very much for coming on here and chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah, I'm stoked. So... First things first, I guess um, you are a qualified nutritionist, which is amazing, um, but you're also currently studying a master's of reproductive medicine as well. That's just incredible. I want to know how did you get into being interested in these topics? First of all, I guess nutrition and then reproductive medicine from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um, So I think like so many health professionals and practitioners, our story often goes back to a struggle that we had uh, ourselves and that's led us sort of down that path. And my story is really no different. I grew up, um, you know, very healthy, had really good real food foundations, I suppose, as a kid. My mum is French, so food and nutrition was really entrenched in our culture and uh, how I was brought up and and everything was always really centered around food. Um, And then as a teen, as we do, you know, we have more autonomy and things like that. We earning our own money, going out more with friends and that kind of thing. So I suppose I strayed a little bit from those real food foundations um, that she had set up for me. And I also, like so many of us, um, started taking the oral contraceptive pill around, I think I was about 15 or 16, roughly, um, but around my 16th birthday. Uh, and I took that for a couple of years and you know, obviously had the stress of the HSC, which is our um, year 12 exams and all of that kind of thing um, was going on. And uh, just after school, I went overseas for, I ended up staying overseas actually for two years. And at that point, while I was over there, I stopped taking um, the oral contraceptive pill and I didn't get a period. And I um, was, you know, living my best life over in Europe and kind of didn't really think anything of it. I was like, look, I'm traveling. It's probably not that uncommon. Um, I'll just, I'm sure it will come back. It will all be fine. I'm really young and all of that kind of thing. So I just put it in the too hard basket uh, and just waited. I thought, you know, when I go back to Australia, I'll deal with it then. So I did that and, um, you know, six months went by. Um, 12 months went by, 18 months went by. I finally got to like the two year mark. And by this point I was living um, in Sydney, Australia. And 
I was like, still in this two years, like there's something, there's something not quite right here. Uh, and so I did go and seek out a women's health uh, GP, so doctor in my local area. And um, when I told her what was going on, she said, no, no worries. Um, you know, she didn't really seem overly concerned. I will um, send you for some blood tests and we'll also do an internal ultrasound just to see if we can see any kind of like abnormalities um, internally. And, and so I did go and do that round of testing. And then I came back to see her and she said, your results are perfectly fine. The best thing for you to do at this point is just go back on the pill um, until you want to have kids and then just come off and sort of deal with it then was the advice that I was given. Um, and I was only, I would have been maybe 19, 20 at the time. And thankfully, I didn't take that advice. Um, I remember just feeling really defeated when I came out of that appointment and thinking like, surely this isn't the answer to my problems. Like I don't, I don't know if I don't have a period because of the pill or there's something else going on, but surely taking birth control is not actually going to fix the underlying issue, right? And I was kind of thinking if I then do take this advice and I go back on it and then try and have kids later, like what's to say this issue of me not having a period is just not still going to be here? Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so I obviously didn't take that advice and I, um, through my work at the time, met a naturopath and started talking to her about what was going on for me. And she said, look, just bring your test results in, come in and see me and we'll um, put some some sort of like protocol together for you. Um, so I did that and I went and saw her and um, she was shocked by my results. She sort of said like, um, you know, there's no, kind of no hormonal activity. It essentially almost looks like you're a postmenopausal woman um, at 19 just because of how um, sort of low all of my hormones were. Um, and yeah, so she, she made a lot of different suggestions. We made dietary changes. I did take herbs and I also started having acupuncture and made a lot of, um, lifestyle changes as well. Like that was probably the biggest thing. And within a couple of months, I did get my period back. And that whole experience for me is really what got me interested in all of this and, um, set me on a completely different trajectory than what I'd anticipated like I never you know was one of those kids at school that was like I want to be a nutritionist <laughs> yeah <laughs> when I grew up um I had no idea uh and it was really that my own I guess experience um that kind of led me down that interest path and even though I thought maybe I wanted to be a naturopath um I always had that more of an sort of affinity with the food side of things and I would probably attribute that to my um childhood yeah Oh, wow. That's crazy. I can't believe that was the advice as well. Just, you know, don't think about it for now and think about it later. I've had an experience like that too, where they, um, you know, I had something with my endometrium lining quite similar where I was having, you know, two day periods and they were very light, was barely even there. And same thing, had to go get an internal ultrasound. And they said, similar to you, you look like you've, it's thinner than a lady who's just been on menopause, which of course is going to affect your pregnancy in the future and things like that. And I was told the same thing, just go on the IUD and then see what happens mm. later. And same with me. I obviously, I didn't take that advice either, but it's, mm. it's happening too often where women and girls are being told, no, 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 you don't need to worry about it. Now you're young. Mm. But then now we've got this whole conversation of 
infertility and, and talking about IVF and all these things that women have to go through just to fall pregnant. And it's, yeah, it's definitely not talked about enough, which I think is why it's so important that there's people like you who are out there educating people about it and understanding your hormones and things like that in that way, because we don't get taught it. We don't. And no. we really, really need to. Um, yeah. I'd yeah. love to say it's an isolated incident, but I can tell you that all these years on, like, yeah, uh, I still hear this multiple, multiple times a week at work and it's, it's devastating. I think that that advice isn't updated. And I think part of that is just, um, and, and, you know, I don't, I really don't want to blame, I guess the GPs or the doctors, because I don't necessarily think it's their fault. I actually think it's more of a system, uh, yeah. it's higher up, I suppose, than, than them necessarily. Um, and I think it's really unrealistic as well to look to one practitioner to solve all of your problems, which is essentially what we're doing with doctors and GPs is we're saying they're kind of that one-stop shop for anything that, um, that you need. And historically with medicine, it was supposed to be only relied on really for emergency um, and, and that kind of thing. So like break your arm, obviously you want to go to a doctor. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately they really just fo- often are following like the standard of care that is, um, really entrenched in the system and that does not get updated very often. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the standard of care might look something like, like a woman presents with hormone irregularities or imbalance, doesn't want a child right now, offer her birth control, right? And so unfortunately that's what we're seeing all the time. Yeah, and it's more just like a mask to the issue rather than finding the actual cause of the problem, I guess. Absolutely. Obviously not how we want to go, especially if you are someone who wants to have kids in the future and maybe that is going to end up being a problem because then you've got, you know, a million other things that come at you and, oh, it's just, yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? I am interested as well. I know, I can't remember whether I read this or I heard it on your podcast, but talking about um, how doctors don't actually get that much nutritional training or anything like Mm. that. So it is one of those things where, like you said, if people are like going to go to their doctor, they'll probably say, oh, you know, get you what is it, five vegetables, three fruits a day, and and that's kind of it. How did you go, um, you know, in your nutrition degree? Like what, what made you want to then do further study in that? Mm. Oh, you mean in – yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's, uh, the doctor's side of things, it obviously varies depending on, I suppose, where they study, but the most they would do is one subject at uni. And to be perfectly honest as well, like having done a nutrition and dietetics degree at an Australian university, even in a nutrition and dietetics degree, the uh, information that we are taught is very, very outdated and is really um, only applicable or mostly applicable to a hospital setting. So that's really quite different to working, I suppose, with the general public who might have, um, you know, other kinds of hormonal irregularities and that kind of thing. Um, So the whole system essentially needs a bit of an overhaul. And I kind of knew that going in. Um, I obviously, from my own experience, as I talked about, did have that interest and affinity with the women's health side of things. Um, And so I hate to say it, but, you know, I think there is an element sometimes of going to uni to get a piece of paper to qualify you to do certain things. Um, And 
it is great if you can obviously see a nutritionist or a dietitian who does have a qualification because you know they've obviously put in that um, hard work for four years in order to get themselves qualified and registered with some kind of governing body. Um, but yeah, I think I just, even though it won't really change too much about how I practice in having this master's degree, I think I wanted the extra qualification, I suppose, to kind of set myself apart. But um, also, you know, I, I deal with a lot of like IVF clients and things like that. And so to be able to better communicate with their practitioners and things like that, I think that's, yeah, really why I wanted that additional qualification. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, well, that's great. And like you said, it does kind of put you in a bit of a higher bracket, I guess, in that sense, especially for that clientele as well. Yes. Women going yeah, absolutely. That, which of course is your focus. So that's, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, I'm really interested to learn more about hormones and the menstrual cycle and fertility and the kind of work that you do with people in that space. So if someone mm -hmm. comes to you and say, let's talk about the menstrual cycle first. I know when we were talking before we started recording, I said, I'm someone that has had to deal with a painful period. So if I came to you and said, you know, I'm getting severe cramping and, and this and that, and my mind's foggy and whatever else, what, what's the process? How do you then kind of help that person? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the first step, we always start with an initial consultation, which is kind of like, lots of questioning and things. So initially we're just, I'm trying to really like gather your, your life basically in a nutshell, all the things you do most of the time. Um, and also really get a feel for the kind of person that you are. It's, it, you know, obviously we focus on nutrition, but there's also so much more that goes into it. You probably heard, you know, those cliche kinds of saying like, you know, you can eat all the right kinds of foods, but ultimately if you're saying awful things to yourself in your head all day long, like it's going to be pretty hard for you to be healthy. Um, and that's definitely part of it as well as kind of getting a feel for that person's mindset and how they might be talking to themselves and things like that. Um, what they're eating day to day, also how they're exercising, um, any other sort of pre-existing health conditions and also other things they've tried because some there's a sliding scale of different um, people that will come to see me and they've either not tried anything, they've tried a couple of things or they're at their wits end, right? And they've been to see all the people, all they've done all the things and they're still struggling with whatever their um, underlying issue is. So depending on sort of where they sit on that spectrum does determine kind of what the next steps are. But typically um, I like to begin with blood testing first. So generally we'll do that with the help of their GP and then it's covered through um, Medicare uh, and we'll get a full range of different nutrients done. Um, and we will also look at things like their metabolic health, their blood sugar control, um, and just a really good understanding of sort of inflammation and overall health and that kind of thing. But um, micronutrient deficiencies are one of the biggest things I focus on because certain um, micronutrients are linked back to and definitely exacerbate cycle symptoms. So um, one in particular, like iodine deficiency, um, which is actually very common in Australia, is uh, very closely correlated with breast pain and tenderness and swelling um, in the cycle. So things like that is kind of what 
I'm looking for initially just to see if we can find anything obvious um, that might be linked back to some of those symptoms. And then similarly, obviously, if someone's experiencing really heavy periods, we're going to expect that they're going to have an iron deficiency. And so if they've got fatigue and things like that, that's going to help to explain and sort of inform what our next steps are. Um, Similarly, iron deficiency also makes our periods worse, our our periods heavier, sorry, because it's involved in how um, our liver regulates estrogen levels. So um, we're looking for different nutrient deficiencies that perhaps aren't the only underlying cause, but are contributing to part of of that person's symptoms um, or or hormone imbalance. Um, And then I use that information to further tailor their nutrition and um, perhaps introduce some supplements for a short period of time if they do have any um, quite significant deficiencies. And then also we're really always looking at different lifestyle factors. So big ones would be um, over-exercising or not exercising at all. Um, Other things would be stress, not sleeping well, being on screens all the time, like all of those really foundational things, but (laughs) people often aren't doing those. And you'd be surprised the difference that those really, really basic things actually make um, in our overall health, but also our menstrual cycle. And I think it's also important to always remember that our menstrual cycle is a reflection of our overall health as well. Um, So the two really do go hand in hand. Um, Then, you know, for example, if in a couple of months that person hasn't improved with really nailing all those foundations or they already have what what seems like all of the foundations in place, but they're still experiencing symptoms, this would be more so that person that's like, I've tried everything and it hasn't helped yet. Um, That's when we would want to look at some more comprehensive um, types of testing. So hormonally, we can look at something called the Dutch test, which is um, dried urine test for comprehensive hormones is what it stands for. And um, it is uh, a urine collection. You sort of these test strips that you uh, take a collection across different times um, in the day. And we're able to get a really, really uh, in-depth look at all of your different hormones, all of your different stress hormones, um, but not just the production of those, but also how they're being metabolized through your body, which is really, really great to look at because quite frankly, testing hormones in your blood isn't often, um, I guess it doesn't often give us the information that we need to explain why certain symptoms um, are occurring. So that can be a really good test. I don't do it with everyone because to be honest, not everyone needs it. And some people, especially the ones that aren't, don't have those foundations in place, we I, I prefer to look at those first and then look at more comprehensive testing if that um, person needs to equally. Some people really want to jump in and, and get a really good understanding of what's going on for them. Um, and then, you know, that's really focusing on hormones specifically, but often they might have an underlying gut issue that's perhaps more of going to be that root cause for them, um, in which case, again, focus on foundations first. If that's not um, making the cut, that's when we might look at um, like microbiome testing or something like that to get some more detailed answers. That is just, I love that because you're looking at the whole person first. I think that's so important rather than it's literally the total opposite of then just going to that quick fix like your doctor maybe will give you as you said no real fault of their own but that's great that you know I can assume that more often than not once you do fix kind of those 
core issues people are, are kind of all right and I love when you said about you know your menstrual health is reflected from your everyday health that is great too because it's like there is there's always something that people can be doing better I guess and Absolutely. so yeah that's that's fantastic I love that idea of looking at everything and making sure that you know you're knocking out all those really really crucial important parts first and then going to maybe those deeper issues if if you need to when you were talking about like iodine and things like that mm -hmm. um what would you suggest like i don't even know what iodine is in in foods or in <laughs> i honestly i'm iron a bit different i kind of you know yeah. and spinach and whatever else but how do you get iodine in your diet um so such a good question that one <laughs> because um it technically should be or used to be in our soil. So we would get it from fruits and vegetables and things like that because the plants would obviously be grown in iodine-rich soil. However, um, we have quite bad soil depletion in Australia. And so a lot of those trace um, minerals and things, even like selenium, which is another one, um, we actually don't get a lot of at all through our diet anymore. So yeah, I'm often, I guess, thinking as well about, you know, even if we know the foods that are high or supposed to be high in certain nutrients, like, are they actually anymore? Yeah. Like I, it's a bit of a scary thought, but I kind of, I'm often thinking about that because yeah, soil depletion definitely is a real thing. Um, and, Otherwise, people would get it in in sort of like the standard Australian diet would perhaps be through iodized salt. Um, it's not necessarily the best um, for you because it is really that um, synthetic uh, synthetic nutrient, obviously. Um, other ways you would get it in would be through seafood, oysters, fish, um, shellfish, uh, and also kelp, like uh, any kind of seaweed products. Um, are going to be high in iodine as well. So, yeah, it's a nutrient that's really often missed. And um, I'm always talking to my clients about it, particularly those that are looking to um, try and conceive in the next um, little while because it's actually one of the leading causes of de de delayed learning in kids is um, maternal iodine deficiency. Oh, wow. um, and my one of my bones that I have to pick with the system is it's not included standardly on like routine preconception testing or even trimester one testing. And I just really think it needs to be included on there because if we have that information, we know people in Australia are deficient and we know it has this really serious um, outcome for kids. I just think like, why, why aren't we testing it? Yeah, one of those things that's just a bit overlooked, maybe. That's mm. that's crazy. That information is so important too. I that's all new for me. I don't know any of that. So that's <laughs> awesome. Are there any other like in terms of talking about your menstrual cycle and hormones, are there any other key foods that you would say if you do mm. uh, struggle maybe with having painful periods or really heavy periods? I don't know what's gonna be different, maybe, but any foods that you would say are needing a hundred percent to be in a diet yeah I think it's always really hard to isolate it down to um, specific foods for more of that I guess what you would say would be an estrogen dominant kind of picture um, which would look like heavy periods painful periods really emotional um, pretty much all of your standard PMS 
type symptoms. Um, the two foods that are often talked about a lot are cruciferous vegetables. So things like broccolis, um, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, all of that, because they contain a compound called um, diendolmethane or DIM for short. Um, and that is extracted. We do extrapolate that into a supplement form as well to get it in a higher dose. But DIM helps to upregulate our phase one and phase two liver pathways. And that's actually how we clear estrogen from our body. So that would be a common food that if you were to look up like estrogen detoxification foods or something on Google, I'm pretty sure that would come up. Um, the other one that's talked about quite a lot as well is um, carrots for a similar reason. Um, and with the skin on in particular, help to really upregulate um, our estrogenic pathways. That said, that is very like um, very much, I suppose, a surface level understanding of how estrogen is detoxified and metabolized. Yes, those foods help, but I think it's always problematic when we try and like isolate it down to one particular thing, right? Because it's never one thing. Um, and in our liver, so if you think about um, estrogen, I explained it a bit like it moves out of our body like a, um, a bath, uh, like a drain. So imagine like water flowing out the bath, going down the drain and um, that drain Imagine that's like our liver pathways and our gut because we poo estrogen out. That's how it mostly exits our body. Um, and there's uh, two components in the liver. They're literally called phase one and phase two. It's very basic. Um, and phase one is really tightly regulated by something called CYP enzymes or CYP enzymes. Um, and they need um, B vitamins and iron to function really well. Um, and all of our uh, medications that we take in alcohol, um, anything else we need to detoxify, any other chemicals also go down that same pathway. So things like iron deficiency and B vitamin deficiencies are going to be things that are going to slow down that enzyme from working correctly. Similarly, things like alcohol and um, how many chemicals and things like that we're exposed to through makeup, cosmetics, um, insecticides, pesticides, all those sorts of things like um, fragrances from our scented candles, all of that kind of thing is going to go through that same enzymatic pathway. And so it's also, I think, the food side of things, but then also thinking like how can we take burden off those systems as well. We always want to make sure we have enough of the nutrients for those pathways to work. But then I think it's also important to acknowledge like nowadays we're just exposed to so many different things that also do make it harder for our body to function optimally, right? And so we need to, yeah, be thinking about what ways we can relieve some of that burden in our lifestyle. That's crazy, isn't it? It does sound so overwhelming when you talk about it like that a little bit where it is these days so many yeah. <laughs> yeah, the pesticides and this and even, you know, your washing liquid. And I have seen kind of that low-tox or no-tox mm -hmm. movement happening a lot online as well um, where mm -hmm. people are creating their own with the essential oils or doing this or doing that. And, um, yeah, people, I guess, are becoming a lot more aware of that too. And Again, it obviously would sound so overwhelming to me because I don't know a lot about it. And I guess that's why we have people like you who we can contact and who can help us with, mm. with that kind of thing, which is awesome. Um, I guess now that was more kind of the menstrual cycle mm. side of things. In terms of fertility, mm -hmm. 
um, if someone was struggling with their fertility, what kind of things do you help them with? Uh, or how, yeah. do you, how do you help them with that? Yep. It depends where they're at because if they're, you know, um, if they're already at the phase where they're doing IVF, um, then we're really looking at um, egg optimization. So what are they eating day to day, but also what supplements can we introduce to really um, optimize their egg quality so that when they do have an egg collection, they're going to hopefully have more um, viable eggs. And then the other thing I'm always looking for is anything that might impact um, transfer as well. So very, very common thing would be like high um, thyroid antibodies. So thyroid gland being that hormonal secreting gland that sits in the base of our neck um, and underlying autoimmune conditions in the thyroid that perhaps haven't been identified because that that person either hasn't been investigated properly or perhaps even isn't expressing symptoms yet because sometimes you can not express symptoms for um, quite some time but still perhaps have those elevated antibodies and that can actually make the endometrial lining inhospitable to um, the egg and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, we're always looking at, I guess, first and foremost, optimizing egg quality so that that person has the best possible chance um, at viable egg collection, but then also what we're doing to really prepare the body um, for a successful transfer. And that also includes lifestyle strategies too, like making sure stress is obviously really, really low um, or as low as possible for a woman going through IVF, right? Because it is, of course, a very stressful and emotional time for them. Um, and also I often look for anything perhaps hormonally that has been missed. So I've had quite a few clients in the last year that, um, which I think we might touch on later who have had, um, PCOS, um, and their insulin's been very, very high and insulin being that key hormone that regulates, um, our blood sugar control. And that is really going to impact our egg quality and things like that. So, um, yeah, I've had some really great results in addressing just those really foundational things that perhaps, um, I guess weren't given maybe the attention that they needed earlier on. Yeah, that's a great little um, segue because I was going to say um, <laughs> about PCOS and, and kind of just ask you, number one, what is it for people who don't know and how, yeah, what kind of ways do you help women who maybe have then been diagnosed with PCOS after working with you and kind of, yeah, the strategies yes. that you use to help them? Yeah, absolutely. So PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it is very confusing because the cysts on the ovaries, for one, arguably don't really have anything to do with the condition. So I really think it needs a rename and a rebrand. Um, you can have cysts on your ovaries or what looks like cysts, um, well, these polycystic ovaries, and not necessarily have PCOS. You can have completely fine hormones and have um, those appearing on, on the ultrasound. Equally, you can have them and have PCOS. So it's kind of, it's neither here nor there really with, with that particular um, part. The, to qualify for the diagnosis of PCOS, um, the Rotterdam criteria is used and uh, always important to mention, never up to me to diagnose anything like that. You need to go to a GP um, to confirm any kind of diagnosis. If I have someone come and see me 
um, and I maybe suspect something, I say, you know, this is potentially what it looks like, but I want you to go to your GP and have a chat with them and see what they think first. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely never my place to, to do that, but, um, the criteria, which we can talk about, um, you need to meet two out of the three criteria, which I'll touch on now. So, um, the first one being, um, high androgens. So these are, um, typically higher in males. So testosterone and DHEAS being the two most common ones. Um, so high levels of those measurable on a blood test or symptoms of high androgens, which might be um, facial hair growth um, or hair growth perhaps around the belly or the chest or somewhere, you know, you're not expecting to have hair growth uh, or acne as well would be another really common sy symptom. And that can be on the chest or the back or obviously the face as well. Um, then the other really cardinal symptom is irregular cycles. And when I say irregular, I mean the entire menstrual cycle going for, for example, like 25 days to 40 days to back to 30 days, then to sit like that. It's usually like starkly irregular um, and typically a variation of more than five days either side. So I'm not obviously talking about like your cycle being 30 days and then 32 days and then 30 days again. That doesn't really qualify. Um, and the third um, criteria in that list is the um, polycystic ovaries on an ultrasound. But as I've mentioned, that, that symptom is really neither here nor there. And, um, yeah, with PCOS, there is a lot of confusion about the diagnosis criteria. I think the whole thing really needs a bit of an overhaul because there is other reasons why you can have irregular periods. Um, and so if you only need to meet two out of that criteria, let's say you have the polycystic ovaries and you have the irregular periods that really doesn't mean you have PCOS. There's other things it could be, but unfortunately, I think I just see too often that that criteria is really like used at face value. And then as soon as someone meets it, there's no really like further investigation done and something that was really drilled into us at university, which I think was one of the most valuable things to learn really well was that there should always be what's called a differential diagnosis done where basically if someone prevent, presents, sorry, with a collection of symptoms, you need to be thinking about every possible thing that it could be and how are you going to rule those out one by one. Obviously our system doesn't really have the time to go through differential diagnosis correctly but I think this is where we're missing a lot of women and particularly women with PCOS that are either being diagnosed incorrectly sadly um, or you know being missed or dismissed and things like that so I think yeah the whole thing really needs um, a big overhaul the most common underlying reason for PCOS so 80% of the time it's going to be insulin resistance um, where that woman has really chronic issues with her blood sugar control and typically the reason why that happens is from eating too many refined carbohydrates or carbohydrates in general uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that person eats a quote unquote unhealthy diet. Like you could be technically following our food guidelines and still end up with insulin resistance. Sadly, we all have different tolerances to carbohydrates. Um, but sadly, I think we've just been sort of duped into thinking we need a lot more than we do. And I'm definitely not like 
super low carb or keto or anything like that. But um, I, I see so many issues with too many carbohydrates being eaten and that causing issues with insulin. And then sadly, um, what is then prescribed is something called metformin. Um, which you might have heard of before, but it's a medication um, given to diabetics, um, like early stage diabetics, um, to help control their insulin levels. But personally, like I've just seen that it doesn't, for a lot of women, it's not very effective. Um, And so I often see that either a woman has incorrectly been diagnosed with PCOS and is taking metformin and feels awful from taking it obviously because they don't have issues with insulin um or what i often see is that they were prescribed metformin took it for years and it didn't really do anything for them and they then have all of these um secondary complications of having really dysregulated blood sugar for such a long time so um yeah i think pcos is so common and such a big issue it's definitely uh, an area of clinic i suppose that i've done a lot more work in over the last year um, I don't know. I think sometimes you just end up getting like flocks of people with the same issues. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it is unfortunately one I do see like a lot of, I guess, mishandling, I think around, um, the diagnosis firstly, and then often the treatment I think as well, because it's just, you know, the sort of the standard of care is that metformin is prescribed if you're diagnosed with PCOS. And unfortunately that in most instances is just really not going to move the needle for you. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's like kind of like band-aid approach with that. Yes. And I guess just yeah. like, let's, let's just do this. Cause this seems like the easiest option, which again, it's probably a system fault. And the fact that, you know, we don't have enough time to, you know, do that individual, every single person go through every single test sort of thing. Um, but I guess what I'm really, really taking away from this is that if you do have, any of these kinds of issues or symptoms to put that extra, I guess, effort into finding someone like you mm. to help, you know, you're there to kind of do the the hard work essentially yeah. and help, you know, find those, those maybe small, not smaller issues, but, you know, less detectable problems that are actually going to help in the long run in, in a big yeah, way. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, the big underlying lesson, I guess, is like, if you have symptoms you need, or if you have something that you really want to correct at that root cause level, um, you, it, you, the onus is really on you to find a practitioner who's going to be able to help you and listen to you. Um, and ultimately find someone as well. I think this is another really important piece that is going to be able to explain things to you in a way you understand as well. Um, because too often I think people are really disempowered around their health and they don't actually understand why they're doing certain things, why they need to make certain changes. And so often then the compliance isn't there as well because they're not engaged and informed about their health. So yeah, I think find someone who will listen to you and who will also explain things to you and um, be, I guess, that advocate for you looking for answers. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's, you know, we talk about that in a lot of different kind of ways of health i had um katie from get papped on um just last week or two weeks ago whatever it was and she was you know saying the same thing with with um pap smears or cervical screenings and things like that you you need to find someone that you know whether that's a gp or someone like you that number one you trust number one number two like you said 
is going to actually explain things to you because that's I think something that is so missed and I think you know health literacy in Australia isn't actually getting any better um Mm. that's so important that people are able to kind of even you know me who I feel like I've I've quite a good grasp around not only my own health but kind of that health in general you'd hope being a health teacher um and even sometimes I go and I've got no idea what's going on and it is really hard so Mm. um I think that's great advice finding someone that you know you can really does listen to you and you can you can trust in that way um so I know you've talked about stress a lot throughout this <laughs> chat. I want to know, um, I think obviously meaning it, it is kind of a, a big factor to a lot of these mm-hmm. things. How does stress in particular affect, you know, our, our menstrual cycle and our fertility and things like that, even just our hormones yeah. in general? Yeah, lots. I mean, lots of different ways. Stress um, firstly impacts our digestive function. So often when say just a really, really sort of basic analogy, when we are stressed and we try and eat food. So for example, you're at work, you're really distracted and, you know, maybe you got a triggering email or something like that. And then you're trying to like sit down and eat your lunch while you're still typing away at the keyboard. Your mind is nowhere near the food that you're eating and you're totally in another planet. Um, your blood flow is not directed to your digestive system. It's directed to your limbs because your brain is getting the signal that you are stressed and you need to flee from said danger. Of course, the danger is your email, so you don't need to actually run anywhere. Um, But that's just one example where blood flow is really diverted away from the digestive system and therefore your gastric um, secretions, gastric acid, all those um, beautiful things that are there to help you break down and access those nutrients um, is really lacking. And so that over time, obviously this doesn't happen from like one particular incident, um, but that definitely leads to multiple nutrient deficiencies. If we don't have um, the correct sort of um, GI functioning happening when we're eating, um, then it's going to be really hard for us to even access the right nutrients in our food. And then going back to how we talked about earlier, micronutrient deficiencies are one of the key reasons why your period will be worse um, than it's supposed to be. And so that plays a really big part. Um, The second thing that is really important to understand is that your body or, or having a healthy menstrual cycle is the same as being fertile and having good fertility, right? Um, Fertility really just means that your body is optimally healthy and you have the option to have a baby if you want one, not necessarily that you would you want to have a baby tomorrow, but that option is there if you want it, right? Um, And if you think about like your brain probably doesn't want to bring a baby into the world if things are really stressful and chaotic because it's not safe. Um, And menstrual health and period health hormone balance all starts in our brain. It really begins there. If you think um, about it, we have all these different endocrine glands in the body. So we've got the thyroid, which sits in the base of the neck. We've got our adrenals and we've got our ovaries, but all of that signaling to get those um, glands and organs to do what they need to do comes initially from our brain. Um, particularly from an area called the hypothalamus. Um, When we are stressed for chronic periods of time, it essentially gets 
the message that the environment isn't safe and it's actually not safe to bring a baby into the world. And very commonly that will cause um, issues with our progesterone production and issues with ovulation. And so often we'll end up, if we've had very severe psychological stress, you know, perhaps you've even had this experience before or someone listening has where it's made your menstrual cycle longer than it's supposed to be. So you've had something really stressful happen and your 30-day, regular 30-day cycle has gone out to 40 days. Um, that is because typically because um, that increase in stress output has um, affected when ovulation has happened and pushed it out further because your brain's gone, whoa, 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 no, 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 it's not safe right now. We don't want to bring a baby into the world this month. Let's either wait until next month or we'll just wait until it's a bit safer and then we'll try and um, give it a go, right? And if we don't ovulate, we don't make progesterone. So we make progesterone from ovulating. That's a really core function of um, having a healthy menstrual cycle. It's the main sort of part or component of it. Um, And so, yeah, I think that is probably the biggest issue that I would see would be stress really impacting ovulation and therefore that impacting progesterone production and therefore that leading to that really imbalanced ratio between estrogen and progesterone, which then looks like often irregular cycles or longer cycles and really awful PMS. Yeah. Wow. That's just, that's crazy to me. I've never, I've never heard any of that. And that's, <laughs> it's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's like that, it does make so much sense, especially even at the start when you were talking about, you know, if you are not actually focused on what you're doing, your mm. stomach and your body isn't going to have, you know, I guess that energy input into where you need it. I Would you, do you kind of encourage people to have that kind of, in, what is it called? Intuitive eating then? Is that what yeah, definitely. I think... <laughs> We need um, more and more, and, you know, myself included, like I can be guilty of this definitely where you're like sitting down to eat and you're just going to quickly scroll on your phone or something. But even that, like your brain is just not focused on what you're doing and you're distracted. And yeah, it's, it's so, I think, prolific in our society these days to be distracted, always on the go, always trying to be productive, all of that kind of like, hustle mentality I suppose um and I think it really affects our health in so many different ways um yeah more than than we sort of realize all those little habits and things that we're doing every day yeah and yeah again even with that you know the part where you were talking about um you know maybe your cycle goes a bit longer because of stress I've had that so many times Mm. with girlfriends where you'd be like oh maybe my period's late but this happened to me And that was really stressful. So, and you just talk about it like it should be this normal thing when it's like, no, (laughs) no, it's not. Make sure that we're making the time to actually de-stress. And obviously, you know, that's a whole other conversation that we could have about Mm. ways to to de-stress, but um, maybe that's for another time. (laughs) Um, Thank you for that. That was fantastic. So I guess this is kind of just like a fun little question that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I know you did say, you know, again nutrition you're not going to just pinpoint it to five yeah that this is what sure. you're going to eat but I'm really <laughs> interested to know I loved this question I did hear it on another podcast and they said you know I'm interested to hear from you as a nutritionist and as someone who is really qualified in that area what are kind of the five main foods that you would never take out of your diet say 
Yeah, it's um, I think I'll take move it to like the five most sort of like nutrient dense Done. fruits or the categories or what have you. Yeah. yeah. So number one, like the most nutrient dense food that you can possibly eat, which most people are probably going to go that is disgusting, is liver. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So if it's like chicken liver or beef liver and you make pate with it, um, I definitely do not recommend like pate from the supermarket because it's going to be full of things you shouldn't be eating um, and probably not the best quality either. But if you can source good quality, um, good quality liver, that is the most nutrient dense food you could possibly include in your diet, whether that's through pate or even um, sometimes I recommend to my clients if they're open to it, of course, some people look at you and they're like, absolutely not. Um, But, you know, they could do a bolognese and maybe put like 10% liver to mince, um, that kind of a ratio, and you would hide it quite nicely and not be able to taste it. So that would be number one. That's um, not what I was expecting at all. <laughs> Keep going. This is good. Uh, number two would probably be eggs. Yeah. Um, they're just so full of um, different micronutrients, B vitamins, choline, um, small amounts of iron, that kind of thing. I think even if you're vegetarian, um, even plant-based, if you could just include eggs, it would be excellent thing to have in your diet. Um, and yeah, they're definitely, hopefully no one has any fear around like cholesterol or anything like that, because there's no need to worry about that kind of thing. Definitely include eggs in your diet if, if you like them. Um, and then it's really hard to narrow it down from here. Um, I would say like, this is not one, but many vegetable wise, just like all the vegetables, um, as much color and variety as possible, um, depending obviously on your um, metabolic health, you want to be including like mostly non-starchy vegetables, of course, like you can still include potato and sweet potato and pumpkin and that kind of thing, but probably less so in proportion to all of the other vegetables that you want to include. Fiber is obviously really important for um, hormone metabolism and also your gut health as well to ensure your bowels keep moving correctly, but also to make sure you have a really diverse microbiome. So our gut health obviously does all of these amazing, wonderful things for us, including um, regulating our immune system, which is obviously very important at the moment. Absolutely. Um, We know that. that. (laughs) Three now. Number four, um, I, you know, I'm going to say berries, berries, obviously full of antioxidants. Um, and they are one of our lower GI fruits. They're excellent to include. Um, so go for gold with the berries and then, um, number five, um, would probably be, um, beef or lamb, I think, because, um, I, Again, so many nutrients in those sorts of foods. Or actually, I did already say liver. I'll change it to oysters, actually. I'm going to go with oysters because they would be very high in zinc and also iodine. And um, none of the other foods I talked about would be very high in iodine. So that's my five. (laughs) Beautiful. So livers, eggs, a range of vegetables, berries, and oysters. And oysters. Yeah. Livers. That's That's great. And that's, I've never, ever, ever thought about liver as being this like superfood <laughs> it's crazy yeah it's it really is probably I'd say like liver and eggs would be like the, the main superfoods I think yeah. um 
obviously it's a personal preference. Not everyone is wanting to eat animal products, which I totally understand. Like I used to be vegetarian for eight years. Um, so I do understand where, um, a lot of that comes from, but in saying that, um, there are so many micronutrients in animal products that are very hard to get from fruits and vegetables. Um, and clinically what I see, unfortunately is a lot of nutrient deficiencies, um, as a result of, um, not including those foods. And I think as well, totally a conversation for another day, but, um, I still think, you know, it's, it is really possible to still sort of stick to your morals and your values while eating those foods, depending obviously on how you're doing it. Yes. Where you're sourcing them. Yeah. And things like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah of course. That, do you think like in terms of, I know you said iodine is not very easy to find these days. Mm. Is that something that you can supplement? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So all of these things you can supplement. Um, I do definitely use supplements in clinic, like pretty much all my clients would be on some sort of supplement short term. Um, But I always use blood testing generally other than something basic, like maybe magnesium, which obviously don't need testing for, but um, everything else I really like to look at um, tests first. So we know how much you need, how long you need to take it for. um, But then also it sort of highlights where some of those gaps are either in your digestion or, or what you're eating and, and sort of gives us that information about how we can get it from your diet, which is going to be the best possible way to get it rather than from a supplement, because we obviously don't find those nutrients in isolation. Yeah. In, in supplement, in food, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. And again, that like kind of blood test you were talking about is what you spoke about at the very start where it is um, on Medicare, it's free. You can go to your GP mm-hmm. and kind of do that. That's good. Oh, well, that's great. I think that's pretty much all for me. Was there anything else that you feel like is really important that you want to include? You have done a brilliant job with this. I've learned so much today. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Um, No, I think that's it. I suppose just the parting message would be like, you know, if you are struggling with any of those sorts of symptoms that we've talked about today, then definitely don't... um, don't wait, like find someone who will back you and be in your corner to um, fix those issues for you. Yeah, beautiful. And where can the listeners find you, find your podcast as well? Because, of course, you've got a fantastic podcast. I I think I mentioned it here while we were recording Um, and, you know, your Instagram and everything like that. Yeah, definitely. My um, uh, website is just my name, so selendouglas.com. Uh, and then my Instagram handle is Celine Douglas underscore nutrition and my podcast, you can probably just search my name, otherwise Holistic Health Chats is the name of the podcast, um, but you can find all of that on my website. It's all um, laid out there for you. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and chatting with me today. I think, um, you know, I can't believe how much I've learned just, you know, in this short time. And I'm sure people who work with you, you know, I've seen the testimonials on your uh, on your website and things like that. And it looks like it's just absolutely fantastic and you're doing really, really good work. So I think people will learn a lot. And um, yeah, just want to say a big thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. I've really loved chatting with you today. No worries. Yay. That is all for today's episode with Selene Douglas. If you want to hear more from her, you can find her on Instagram at Selene Douglas underscore nutrition. She also has Holistic Health Chats, which is her podcast as well, which is absolutely fantastic if you do want to hear a bit more about this topic. 
I hope everyone stays safe and I'll be back in your ears very soon. See you later.